it's not always just who that individual is working for now. Maybe it's a former employer that they've left six months ago or a year ago that they could still have invaluable information that they might be even more willing to give up because they think, well, I've left that company. What difference does it make? Welcome to the Rain Insights on Security podcast series. I'm Brian Lynch, Executive Director of Safety and Security for Rain, the Risk Assistance Network Plus Exchange. Today's podcast is insider threats to organizations, both large and small. Too often, businesses may have a program to prevent such threats, but lack a clear understanding of how and why their trusted employees contractors, and business associates could undertake an action which could result in serious financial and reputational damages to the firm. My guest today is Peter Warmka, the founder of the Counterintelligence Institute, which assists clients with security awareness training and developing effective insider threat mitigation programs. Peter, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the invitation. So, Peter, let's let's start with the beginning. What, what constitutes an insider threat? Very good question. And frequently, this is it becomes very ambiguous, confusing, and overly exclusive when individuals throw out that topic of insider threat, because whether the action is based upon a human error or the result of social engineering or done with malicious tent, intent. It all plays into what we refer to as the human factor and its relationship with technology. That is the core of any type of insider threat, is that relationship between human beings and the technology, as well as policies and procedures that organizations uh, institute to protect themselves and their data. So let's talk a little bit about the insider threat actor. What's the motivation there? Well, there's a number, there's a number of possible motivations. We could have an individual, once again, that could be just pure human error. But then if we separate out the human error, where an individual is actually undertaking an action with a specific intent in mind, we could probably break that down into two areas. Is it an area where this individual on their own right have decided to go ahead and do something like, for example, sabotage the network or release information to the general public that's very sensitive, that could harm the organization or embarrass the organization? Or is it just deciding to take information out and trying to sell that information uh, to another company or taking information out and trying to set up their own business? Uh, Those are done with intent. But many times there's another whole side of this that few people really focus on is the ability of various outside threat actors to target an organization and looking at specific insiders whom they can utilize, who they can manipulate into undertaking actions, which sometimes, many times, the insider does not even realize that what they are doing by being influenced by the outside threat actor is actually detrimental to the organization. Sometimes they're very witting. Sometimes they're completely unwitting of what is happening to them. You you laid out uh, the the types of activities that an inside threat actor can accomplish. Let, let's get into a little bit about the demotivation of that insider. What causes the threat actor to actually do this type of 
you know, we want to call it an activity, but really it's it's a malicious intent activity against the firm. Well, first of all, there's a people come to, to become employed by an organization looking to have various needs fulfilled, right? Probably the predominant one is gainful employment. They also want to potentially grow in their career. They are looking at a, at a work environment that's going to be conducive for them to be, to be content. So these are motivations, right? But there's also a number of vulnerabilities that can creep up in individuals. Well, at the very top of the list, of course, is financial. Is, and this is especially the case these days with the fallout, economic fallout from COVID, where a lot of people, some people might have their job still gaining, gaining their, their normal compensation. But as part of the household, they have other family members who have lost their job, lost their income. You know, we all know somebody, whether it's ourselves or someone else that's gone through serious financial difficulties. It creates all kinds of problems, even with their relationships at home with family members, separation, divorce. I mean, this causes people to start to look at other ways that they might be able to supplement their income because at the end of the day, they want to put food on the table somehow. So, so money can become a, a motivator on one side. People want to make more, but it can be a severe vulnerability when individuals all of a sudden are up to their neck in financial debt. And other vulnerabilities might be individuals who just believe because of changes in the workplace, very disgruntled. They have a new supervisor that came, that came in who they believe really doesn't understand. So ego sometimes can play a part in, in this. Other things that can come up would be, uh, for example, low self-esteem. There are some employees that might feel like no one's paying attention to them. They're a failure. And then there could be someone that's going to become their best friend. That might be the, the social engineer uh, who represents one of these threat actors. So there's a number of motivations as well as vulnerabilities that can be tapped into that would influence someone to undertake, undertake an action that would be detrimental to the firm. Before we get into the detail on the external actors, Peter, I'd like you to explain your view on background investigations. And where does the background investigation fit into that equation? Oh, the, thanks for the question, Brian. The background investigation is crucial. We look at individuals Individuals are not predictable like necessarily machines. When they approach the employer, first of all, they're going to be responding to questions in the interview. They're going to be putting down information on their application, on their resume. Some of that information could potentially be misleading. It could be falsified. And that's why it's very important for during a background investigation to ensure that the information that the individual is providing is, in fact, uh, accurate. And I mean, there's a lot of things when uh, when we start early in our career, let's say when we're 18, 20, 25 years old, we might be we might have practically a pristine background. There's only one background check done at the very beginning, but different things happen throughout an individual's life, things that can impact a person financially, emotionally. There are other individuals that if they're investigated, you might find, oh, there's a, there's a few things here in their record, maybe even some misdemeanors or something maybe more serious. So these things have to be properly adjudicated. If someone has come in and we see in their record that there's something that's someone somewhat detrimental, that we might see there's a bit of a risk factor here, we have to make that decision. And, and, but, but we still have to be able to monitor what's going on in their life going forward. So that background investigation 
is crucial. Not enough companies perform, have them performed, nor do they do them in the depth that really they should be. And I would highly recommend that they be done on a regular basis. And I realize that this is a cost factor here, but at least that there be a reinvestigation of individuals when they're looking to promote them into positions of greater access or greater responsibility. It sounds like the background investigation is a critical piece of the puzzle in, in making sure that the firm does its due diligence in the hiring process. And it sounds like it's a trust but verify process, uh, particularly on the initiation of the investigation, the background investigation, but also, as you noted, in the reinvestigation, whether that's every three or five years, right? Absolutely. So you pointed out the stressors that occur in an employee's life, right? We all have them. You know, one of the recent stressors that everybody's going through is uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So let me ask you this. How does the remote working affect this added item that everybody has to manage? Uh, not only if you live by yourself, but, but if you have family members, you have children, you have parents, grandparents living in the home. How does this add to the stress that everybody's feeling? It's an interesting topic because on the surface, when people started thinking, oh, I can, re I can work from home, it was all positive, right? But I think as we're going more and more into this, this creates a problem both for the employees as well as even the organization. And regarding to the employees, it creates a lot more stress. First of all, you have to have the right, uh, I would say, right character or motivation to to be able to go get up and, and take care of things on your own without somebody like a supervisor in touch with you and, and managing your, your workflow. But when you have in your house now, you need to have some privacy to be able to work. And I know so many cases where you have both the husband and wife trying to re work remotely from home and being on conference calls. And in addition to that, having children, th there's been changes in even the development of children that I'm hearing. And this is creating really a lot of stressors for for the parents. Stress in the sense of the emotional well-being of, of individuals. And I think, I think remote work can, work, can, can be affected, but you, there's going to need to be some changes, some more realignment and more balancing to make it a truly productive fa factor versus right now, I think the word is out. And I think there's probably just as much uh, negativity or disadvantage of problems versus uh, the benefits that come from it. How does the lack of socialization with coworkers and frankly, being isolated from the corporate culture, how does that add to the stress, Peter? Oh, this is huge. And not only does it add to the stress, but I think it's a big problem going forward with the remote workforce is people will begin to feel a little bit disconnected with the workplace. They, if we have uh, coworkers that all of a sudden something pops into our mind, we can mention it to a coworker and say, hey, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? And we can get some feedback. But if they don't have that connection where to bounce off ideas from uh, individuals, 
there's two things that can happen. Either when things come up, the employee pretty much just freezes and doesn't do anything, doesn't, doesn't really try to take on any initiatives, or they automatically will undertake unilateral activity, and sometimes they might be mistaken. So there's not the same level of oversight. There's not the same ability to go in and, and to speak with coworkers or even to speak with a, a boss that we just, take, we just take so much for granted. And people have to be really effective communicators. Think about it. How important is nonverbal communication? You know, some people put it up as 80%, 85% is nonverbal. We can be so misunderstood in our communications when we don't have that chance of really going in and being able to face-to-face uh, speak with coworkers and, and our supervisors. Another aspect of this, and I think that's even more important, is I, I fear that there's going to be a possibility of individuals feeling less connected and it's going to degrade on the loyalty to the organization, the understanding of the culture and feeling that they're part of that culture. Years ago, we would have individuals that maybe would stay with one employer for almost their entire career, or maybe they would they would have two different employers, maybe up to three. Now, it's so typical for people to jump from job to job to job. And what differentiates those opportunities? You know, a lot of it's going to come down to financial compensation. I think the individuals are going to be more susceptible, whether or not it's intentional or it's exploitable, that they could be utilized or they decide to do something that could ultimately be detrimental to the company because it's, but it's seen in their eyes as being beneficial to them as an, as an individual or a benefit to their family. So far, we've, we've identified uh, what, an in, what, in, what an insider threat is and the actor who's doing that, what motivates that person, and then what are the demotivating factors while employed in that organization and how that influences a person. And then you noted how the background investigations and reinvestigations can assist that. And then you laid out how COVID-19 adds to the stress. So let's get into the, the area of the, the individual employee has made a decision to either release information to the detriment of the organization, get paid by an external actor to do the same thing. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, feeling uh, part of the team or the loyalty. You know, joining an organization is like joining a team, right? So you don't, at some point, feel like you're a member of that team. And my next question is, you know, what has the firm done to either demotivate the individual or, or had him feel, him or her feel, that uh, they were not getting their expectations met? Because it comes down to now rationalization. Can you talk a little bit about that, Peter? Absolutely. Rationalization is, is an important factor here. There has to be an opportunity to undertake an action, uh, but there also has to, we have to rationalize if we're going to do something, uh, why are we doing it? And a big part of that can be, as you mentioned, the individual feels that they're being somewhat cut off from what they had pre- previously perceived as a great uh, opportunity for them. It was meeting their needs. 
Now, there's a lot of different factors that that happen when companies increase in size or if there's mergers. Uh, all of a sudden, individuals are not doing the same job that they were hired for before. They may be put into something else that maybe they consider is beneath them. Instead of a promotion, they see it like a, a demotion. They see other people perhaps getting rewarded. Sometimes there can be even unjustly, unjustly rewarded where they don't see it as a, even playing field within a company. There's favoritism. There's, there's supervisors that will favor certain employees and reward those employees. And, and, and so there, some people will feel that they're just being un, unjustly treated. I mean, they can actually start to hate their employer. I mean, I, I've known cases people actually hate. They will go into it so that they continue to get their paycheck, but they despise it. They hate it. They don't like the owner. They don't like their supervisor. There might be a number of motivations for someone to decide to actually do something like sell the information. One could be financial, of course. It's it's added plus. They're getting additional income. But a, a secondary one in this particular case could be revenge. I'm going to get back. I'm going to get back at my employer who's been treating me very bad, you know. And at the end of the day, you know, even if I end up getting fired, it happens. But for this period of time, I'm going to do everything I can to get back to the, get back at them. Uh, they treated me unjustly. So that revenge or hate factor can be very important. Jealousy, okay, as I mentioned, if some people are getting unfairly rewarded, it's, the employee could feel like uh, this very, very jealous. And uh, that, that continues to grow, to grow and they're looking for an outlet, what they can do to kind of compensate for that feeling. Uh, I mean, there's a whole host of of factors. There there are individuals, a very strong factor sometimes. There are people that believe that they are smarter than anybody else. And, you know, if they're in an environment where they feel like they're being rewarded or people are, you know, are acknowledging that they're, you know, that they're very smart, they'll, they'll maybe be content. But if all of a sudden they feel that things are, are not going their way, that they're bringing in a new supervisor that wants to change some things, and uh, this individual might think, well, I'm smarter than anybody else to include the supervisor, and I'm going to show them that I'm smarter. Maybe they might not even know, but I'm going to undertake this particular activity, which might be taking, you know, setting up this network to take money, take uh, information outside of the network because I am super tel- intelligent and I'm not even going to get caught. And I'm going to do this and the company will never know it. And I mean, so it's just another, what we say, uh, motivating factor. Or you could say it's kind of a vulnerability, but but individuals will do things. I mean, there have been, back in, back in my world of, uh, we talk about espionage, I mean, there have been people that, because of ego, they don't, they don't even need to have the... Uh, the extra financial income, they would undertake actions because they had a very huge ego and they just wanted to prove that they could do it. Yeah, those are all great points, uh, Peter. And let's now talk a little bit about the external influence maybe on some of these employees that are in that bucket, in that type of uh, outlook in a firm. How does that external threat actor determine who to uh, recruit or how to recruit, how do they target? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. I think first I would want to define a little bit what is the outside threat actor because there's various types. I suppose the top of the list we would think of criminal groups and there's different ones, different sizes. It could be a two, three person group or it could be a very sophisticated criminal group. That's definitely a threat actor. Uh, underneath that would be an intelligence service uh, that could, I mean, you 
typically think of intelligence services, you know, out to steal plans and intentions of other governments. But there is intelligence services that will actually go after what we might consider the uh, proprietary information, uh, research and development, uh, especially those in the high tech sector are targets. You have com- you have countries like the like China, like uh, Russia, and it's a, it's a list of countries that could be in that category of trying to penetrate com- uh, companies, private companies, uh, to gain access to information. Then there are other competitors. Not all competitors are squeaky clean. There are some competitors that will try to gain insight, gain information, and sometimes they might cross the line into what would be illegal activity. Then there could be even activist groups. Uh, so there's a, there's a number of different types of threat actors, but the way they would go about in principle of doing this is, first of all, they're going to choose their target organization and what do they want to obtain? What's the objective? It could be the theft of proprietary information. It could be the theft of customer data or the theft of employee records. I mean, both customer data and employee records are, are sold on the deep dark, dark web. There's a huge market for that. So they could just be in transactional. I'm going to steal this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resell it. It could be actually ransomware. I mean, being able to utilize an insider in the company to be able to install ransomware. And I think uh, most people who are listening are very familiar with, with ransomware. I mean, it's a huge problem. $7.9 billion cost to the U.S. economy last year, 2019. Then there's the business email compromise, another means for a, a, an organization like a criminal group to penetrate and to be able to send, have wire transfers uh, made by impersonating a senior official in the company, providing wire transfer instructions to a employer employee to send that money out. And once it's out, it's sent to a fraudulent account. Good luck in trying to get that back. The FBI uh, states that it is a cost of $26 billion to the U.S. economy, accumulative over the last three years. So it's, 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 it's big, all right? These different, these different things that can be, can be targeted. So, how, so once the objective is defined, then then really researching that organization because none of these attacks are going to be conducted in a void of information. The more information that can be collected, um, we refer to it as open source or information that's publicly available, right? More information that's collected, the better chance for better success of the particular attack and the less likelihood that there's going to be any compromise. So there's a lot of different ways that we can collect information on the organization. Uh, I can go into great detail about that. And if we have time, we can go back to it. But the most important thing amongst all of this now is going to be selecting the potential insiders. In the old days, to do this, we would have to try to find an organizational chart. And then like, look, well, this person's name and their title, let's see if this individual might be worthwhile pursuing. And then try to get to try to find a means to, to engage them, get together with them, to learn about them. Long gone are those days. Now with uh, social media, social media has opened up a world. It's such a fantastic tool for these threat actors. And most individuals who are on social media just don't realize the threat that's there. So getting back to the point, how to identify potential insiders. All I have to do is go on LinkedIn. Put any company's name on LinkedIn and do a search of people, and you're going to find, depending on the size of the company, hundreds th- or, or thousands or even into the hundreds of thousands of employees that have profiles 
on LinkedIn. And of course, I can do a further restricted uh, search to look at geographic location of that of that company's office and different level of positions that an employee might have. Then I can come down to my short list of targets, okay, individuals who I think might be exploitable, especially given what position they have in that company. Now the stage is going to be, let me collect as much information on these targets to assess them about whether or not they might be suitable and how they might be approached. Once again, social media. What kind of information do we find on individuals? Their complete academic and professional background, but not only their resume. There's a lot of additional information on LinkedIn that we can learn about their career progression, their career aspirations, the different certifications that they have, the different professional associations that they are members of. Uh, Maybe sometimes they even put their volunteer work that they do on there, and that gives us an idea about what their passions might be. Uh, Of course, their network, uh, their their professional network is there available for us to also take a look at. Then we can drop down to Facebook. And I won't say drop down. It's just another area where we can gain great insight into that person of who they are and and what their passions are, their interests, their likes, their where they've traveled to, who they've traveled with, where they're traveling to in the future, their favorite sports teams, uh, their... uh, their favorite foods, uh, their network of friends and family members. I mean, pretty much everything you can find uh, on an individual on social media is going to be found pretty much in, on Facebook. And, and, and pictures, just think about it. We can analyze to see if pictures are worth a thousand words. I can get a good idea of someone's social economic status just by analyzing the pictures that they're posting. Then we can move on to Twitter. And Twitter's uh, interesting because it sort of gives me a pattern of life. And you, and you might say, well, what do you mean by pattern of life? When people are tweeting, they're usually tweeting on the way to somewhere. They're, we can give an idea of where they're, they're, they go, what's their routine outside of the office. At the end of the day, a lot of these things, if we wanted to target somebody, it's not targeting them inside the office. You know, security professionals are looking at, we're going to protect this facility and protect our, our information and protect our employees inside the workspace. Uh, IT professionals are looking at how to secure their networks. I'm talking about how to protect employees when they're outside of that workplace, where they're very vulnerable, where the organization's very vulnerable. If I'm collecting information on these individuals, I'm looking to pursue them outside of the workplace. So getting to know their patterns of life is very important. With Twitter also, I can learn about their, you know, what are their, what's their political viewpoints? What are their, what's their religious convictions? Uh, what are different things that, you know, their their views on a lot of different issues do include even things that really upset them, you know, what, what, what really, your pet peeves, all these things then help me to put together or, or help us, a threat actor put together pretty much a personality assessment profile. We can identify all those different motive, possible motivations. You know, and it's not just money. Uh, we can identify a lot of things like maybe their, their particular family or the education for their kids, their career progression. Uh, maybe they have a, uh, they'd like luxury goods. You know, we, we can see that in their Facebook pages that they'd love to have spend money on uh, expensive watches or brand new car. Uh, there, could, there could be a lot of different factors that are additional motivations that might not be so obvious on the surface, but we can identify them. Then I mentioned to you vulnerabilities, you know, if they're having financial problems, we might also detect if they uh, have, a, have a particular vice, 
you know, they love to go gamble. They have uh, they might like to go out to drink a lot. They might, uh, in, in other in other words, we can get a good feel for their their motivations and vulnerabilities, and then we can decide how we are going to approach them. Okay, and there's a lot of different ways that we can approach them through social engineering. But I think I want to highlight one thing that most people don't think. A lot of people are thinking of these phishing attacks, right? We can easily get in by sending someone an email. And so a lot of firms are focusing on basic phishing so employees understand that. But there's a whole new level of phishing. And we can refer to it as spear phishing. But even beyond that, when we talk about social media, we can easily create, and there's so many of these up there already, these, these fake profiles, these fake social media profiles, whether it be on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, but especially LinkedIn, where you can set up these profiles and engage somebody on LinkedIn and gain their trust, where it's so easy to not only uh, obtain additional information regarding that individual as a target, as, a, as an insider, but also to elicit a lot of really sensitive information regarding the company. And then use a, a number of different techniques where you can actually exploit that contact to undertake whatever your objective is. Well, it certainly uh, provides a, a picture of the external threat to an organization that is organized and structured and um, what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, they're developing, frankly, a strategic plan on how they're going to obtain the information that they need. And as you rightly pointed out, it, it's not only uh, espionage uh, from a military perspective, but it's also economic espionage, right, Peter? Absolutely. What you laid out there mm -hmm. was looking at whatever the company has as its top of the line, either intellectual property or what is it that makes that company competitive in the industry, that's what these actors are looking for. And they're looking for that weak link in a company, as you rightly pointed out. Brian, it's really scary because if you think about it, uh, last year, the average cost of a security breach worldwide per incident was $3.5 I believe. For the U.S., happening in the United States, it was over $8 billion. But this is only the tip of the iceberg because the majority of breaches are not going to be publicly disclosed. They're only disclosed if there's a legal requirement. Otherwise, why would a company disclose that it's had a breach? Because it's going to tarnish their reputation. They're going to lose clients or potential clients. They're going to open up to litigation. And so a lot of these breaches end up not being reported. So the problem is really much larger than what the, we, we, you know, we, we learn about or what we hear about uh, on the news. And the external actors know this. They know that a lot of companies do not want this in the light of day. You've laid out, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty well here the the threats uh, from an external actor uh, identifying that insider that is vulnerable to whatever pitch might be made. Talk to the companies that might be listening to this, Peter. That might say, you know, we really don't have that problem here. <laughs> okay, uh, now let me open listeners' eyes to something that could very well be happening in your organization because I've, I've seen it happen. I've participated in this. It, it's a very good, useful technique to penetrate an organization. It's called the executive recruiter scheme, let's say. Imagine one of your employees receiving a telephone call 
from someone who describes themselves as an executive recruiter. They've called your employee because of, uh, the employee's got their professional bio out there, LinkedIn, right? So this is, a, this is a technique that legitimate recruiters are using all the time. Your employee gets called by one who is fraudulent, who is working for an external threat actor, speaks to the, the individual and lays out, listen, I've, I've called you because I'm really impressed with your background and I believe that you would be a very strong candidate. They'll tell them about the generalities. The position would be this title. Okay, title's important, and the title's going to be a little bit higher than what they currently have. It's going to be greater responsibility and, of course, compensation. That's going to be much more attracted to them than what they're currently making. Now, even if your employee was not at all considering leaving, they're, they're overall content, but they, and they weren't considering looking for another job. They're thinking, what do I have to lose to at least hear this out? So they agreed to get together with this headhunter, this executive recruiter. Of course, they're going to get together with them outside of the workspaces. And, and while they sit down, it will appear to be a typical interview. They will use typical interview questions, but they will insert in that process something I refer to as elicitation. It's, it's a very specific skill set threat actors will use when they're engaging an individual, whether over the phone or in person in this case. It will appear to be like a casual conversation, and they will steer the conversation to specific points of interest. And once they steer it there, they will be quiet and they will let the individual talk and talk and talk. And by the time it's over, the individual will have no idea of the sensitive information that they have given up. Now, this could be just a one-time incident. The individual, the threat actor has got the information that they need from that and can be, can be very useful. And it, it, it's not always just who that individual is working for now. Maybe it's a former employer that they've left six months ago or a year ago that could still be, they could still have invaluable information that they might be even more willing to give up because they think, well, I've left that company. What difference does it make? So now, in addition to it being used as a one time, it can also be follow up contact, follow up uh, meetings with this, your employee and to a point of even uh, getting them more excited. They're the final candidates for a great position, uh, but then all of a sudden it falls through. Someone else got the job and it can happen again and, and, and it, it fell through. And the person now is thinking, man, I had uh, what I thought would be a great opportunity and now twice in a row someone else has been chosen. Maybe, maybe it's not that easy. So they're left in this situation of feeling a little bit insecure. And then the, the executive recruiter comes back and say, listen, I don't have a full-time position right now, but I do have this outside opportunity. You mentioned to me that you might be interested in someday being an outside consultant you know, on the industry, this could be a great opportunity for you to, to cut your teeth on this for being a consultant to this company that will about the industry and, and about your company's activities in the industry. All you need to do is, you know, send out uh, on a periodic basis, answer these questions or get together uh, with the client or representative of the client and share some, share some information, your insight, your invaluable insight, and you will be handsomely rewarded. Great outside income. And they feel that they're getting uh, this experience that where it could actually grow into something much bigger. Now, this could this can take place for a few months once the threat actor got, has what it needs. Maybe they'll discontinue. But this could literally go on for years. And uh, the individual it feels like they're well taken care of. The meetings are become, become more secure. 
they're bringing out information, and even though they're asked to bring out more and more sensitive information, they're beginning to justify it. You know, we talked earlier about some of these motivations. It's not always just money. There could be other things that they feel that they're not being properly treated by their employer. They maybe despise their their supervisor. And these just add, you know, this, it helps rationalize what they're doing. But what happens here, a lot of these breaches, you know, usually come out in light and the companies realize that they've been hacked or, you know, their, their network has been hacked into. Here we have cases where the most times, the company never realizes that they've been hemorrhaging these sensitive, the sensitive information, and they do never find out. Eventually, the threat actor says, well, you know, thanks, but you know, we've, we've uh, pretty much run this to fruition now. Here's a bonus. Thank you very much for your work, uh, for us, your assistance. Or the individual has moved on to another company or is retired. And the, the, the victim, the company that's been victimized, has never found out that this happened. Uh, Peter, that's a great example. And, and really, in essence, whatever the intellectual property is, or what I, what I like to say is the DNA of the firm that gives it or provides it the advantage in the marketplace can be targeted. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a small mom and pop that has a nice niche business. Everybody is at risk. So what can a company do to limit their exposure risk to, the, to these types of threats? One of the most obvious ones is trying not to make yourself a target. And one of the, one of the biggest, reasons, biggest things there is, is minimizing the amount of information that is uh, posted out there on the World Wide Web. Some of this information is directly put out there by well-intended employees, you know, whether it's HR, whether it's public relations, but realizing that some of that information is really exploitable you have to try to limit that. I mean, even, uh, you know, some, a lot of times people don't, I had a, the, a conference, a seminar recently with HR professionals and just speaking about what is put out there sometimes in the job description, you know, when jobs are posted, how those can sometimes be really revealing to the IT vulnerability, I mean, what the IT architecture is within a company. Everything that a company is putting out there in some capacity needs to be analyze and say, is this something that we really need to put out there? Uh, is the marketing value greater than the, what, we're, what, what can actually open us up to exploitation? Or how can we tone it down or, or better, better manage the information that we're putting out there? Well, what, what, is our, what are our employees putting out there? Um, and that's a whole other gamut of you know, whether or not companies should be monitoring what employees are saying ab about them. That, that, that's a whole other topic. And of course, legal needs to be involved. But second of all, though, and most importantly, it's the education. It's the security awareness education within that company. You know, a lot of companies these days, they have their compliance. They're going to train their employees once a year on different things, which will include, secure, you know, security vulnerabilities and maybe some sort of different types of social engineering attempts via phishing. But it's, it's, it's treated more as strictly compliance. The employees see that right away. And employees undertake the same attitude. They just see it as something that they need to do, that their employer is asking them to do, but they don't see even a personal benefit when it comes to this greater security awareness, understanding the threats, understanding why their company might be be a target, understanding why them as individuals could be a target because they could be utilized an insider, understanding how they as individuals could be a target for identity theft, which is another whole problem. If they can understand that uh, these issues also benefit them as individuals, I think they will be much more attuned to security, 
training. And I think this is something that shouldn't be just a one, an annual uh, event for compliance, but it should be something that's uh, ongoing. Everybody in the organization, uh, the C-suite would have something completely different maybe than some individuals at the, the lower levels, but it has to be something that reaches every level within the organization, because once again, anybody can be can be targeted and there should be ongoing sensitization and even maybe ways to be able to simulate different types of attacks, whether it's phishing uh, or other types. There's a number of different attack mechanisms we haven't talked about, but being able to simulate those and not to punish people for having fallen for them, but to be able to learn from from things that have happened and, and and uh, to kind of like up the ante and make people kind of continuously be on the lookout. If I receive a suspicious email, if I receive a suspicious call, hey, this could actually be whether it's a part of the testing or this could actually be a real one and knowing what to do. They have to know uh, not to just, oh, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to hang up the phone or I'm not going to respond to this email. But there has to be a mechanism in place for incident reports. Because when an attack under uh, is happening, it's usually not just one employee that's getting something. It's a bunch of employees that are being attacked or targeted at the same time. And if these incident reports are sent to the appropriate individual, probably the head of security, they will know right away, okay, we are under attack. And they will even send out you know, um, a, a notifications to the workforce. That's very important. An organization, too, I mean, there can't just be one individual. It can't be just the head of security or it can't be the head of IT or it can't be just uh, somebody in HR that then undertakes this function. And when it comes to dealing with insider threats, all insider threats, there needs to be a well-planned, integrated team within companies because everybody in these areas that I mentioned to you have to be involved. It's an HR function. It's a security function. It's an IT function. Of course, it's a legal function. Otherwise, it will fail. It will just be something on paper. It will not be properly instituted, and it might even cause more problems. It really needs to be effectively planned, designed, and implemented, and monitored. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Those are all great points and and great actions for companies to consider. So just to recap, it's limiting the company's information that's publicly available it's limiting uh, the employees and what they put out in the public regarding either their position or the company. It's having the security awareness education training that you talked about, indicating the how and the why the threat would be at that firm or against that firm. And then the ongoing training, incident reporting process. And then security, I think it's a great point. Security is everyone's responsibility. So, Peter, I wanted to uh, say thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much, Brian, for the opportunity. I have enjoyed it very much speaking with you and stand ready to assist anybody. If they have any questions, follow-up questions, please feel free. I'd be very happy to engage on this issue. Thank you, Peter. Again, this is Brian Lynch, Executive Director of RAIN's Safety and Security Program. If you should have any questions regarding this topic, please reach out to the RAIN Network. Uh, or Peter Warmka at his firm, Counterintelligence Institute. Thank you. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to www.rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today.